This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. This is Gordon Teeson, along with my co-host, Josh Cumston. Today we'll be playing a portion of a message from Chad Haygood. He's a senior pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in Hastings, Nebraska. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the implications of the gospel. You know, we hear about the gospel all the time, and Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and what that means, and how we're called to believe that, and how it should impact us. But what often is misunderstood are the necessary implications of believing the gospel. It changes us. It changes our nature. It changes our mind and our heart. It changes our our actions. And one of the most important ways that it changes us is in our relationship to sin. We look at sin differently. We approach sin differently. Now, sadly, we, we all sin and we continue to sin. But yet, there is certainly a different attitude and a different mindset and even a different way and we, which are, we live out our lives in the relationship to sin. Namely, we begin to live lives that put to death sin. That's what Paul's talking about in the book of Romans, chapter 6. I'm going to read for us these 14 verses, and then we'll, we'll look at what they have to say. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, no means shall we continue in sin so that grace would just increase. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, We've all studied history, right? You guys have to study history, obviously, in school. Did you guys ever spend time studying what's called the Protestant Reformation? Yeah, it's kind of a big time in church history. In fact, I remember I was a history major in college, and we talked about there were two dates. I remember my professor in college, the first date, he would say, these are like hinges on the door to modernity. These are two dates that stand 25 years apart and that mark, that change the course of history, one of them being... 1492, 
Columbus sails the ocean blue. 25 years later, both of them happening in October. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther. He nails the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg and, and ignites the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century led by Martin Luther and other men, it led many into a rediscovery of, of a doctrine that had been neglected for far too long. And it was the doctrine of justification by faith. The Reformation, in many ways, it restored this doctrine of justification by faith to many. That what they were doing, these reformers, like Martin Luther, they were asserting on the basis of biblical authority that people are justified by grace and through faith, and faith alone. They would say things like this, that faith is the alone instrument that brings salvation. It's not by works, it's not by popes or priests that someone is justified. But as the Reformers reminded the church, we are justified by faith. But what's interesting about this time was that not all Protestants loved the doctrine of justification by faith as much as others. In fact, some people thought that this doctrine was a dangerous doctrine. They thought, hey, this preaching of grace, this preaching of faith apart from works of salvation, that's, that is a dangerous doctrine to preach. They were What they were afraid of is that, is that this emphasis on justification by faith alone would lead people to live rebellious and scandalous lives. That they would just be rebels against God. They were afraid that if justification by faith was emphasized, then people they wouldn't care about living lives that are marked by holiness. That they wouldn't care of living lives that are marked by Christ-likeness. And this fear it wasn't, wasn't even... It's not even just unique to the Reformation. And this is a fear today by some. There are some who still reject justification by faith, or at least de-emphasize it because of what they see from those who profess to be Christians, confessing to be justified by their faith. There are a lot of people who believe that their faith has justified them. They, they have been saved. And so now they have their ticket and they can live however they want. They made it to the door of God, they got their ticket, and now it doesn't matter because I'm saved and I can, I can live however I want to live. Now that they're saved, they, they pervert something like once saved, always saved into a license to live in sin without any guilt. Hey, I've, I've got this, I'm good to go. No guilt, no need to worry, I've got my ticket. I can live however I want to live. So in response to that kind of lifestyle, it can, be, it can seem reasonable to call that doctrine into question. And this is what was happening to the Apostle Paul as well. As Paul was, was preaching the gospel that we talked about, he was emphasizing grace. There began to be questions on this emphasis. It seems like this is what may have been happening even in Rome as Paul writes this letters to Christians there. Many of them were, were Jewish Christians, and Paul was, he was either confronted by the question, or at least he anticipated the question, this question like this. If salvation is all of grace, then we should sin all that we want so that grace would abound. 
Or at least grace would be even greater than if we didn't sin at all. In other words, the logic became, since grace covers our sins, we should just sin tremendously so that there would be a tremendous amount of grace. Well, here, Paul, he wants to address this issue. He wants to clarify the relationship between justification by grace, which he has been expounding in in a lot of detail up to this point, by showing the Romans that God's saving grace and true saving faith will certainly produce holiness. There is a certain and necessary relationship between grace and holiness, which means that salvation is not a ticket to live however we want to live. When we think about the context that you live in, if it's many ways that we can rebel against God, whether it's through things like sexual immorality or drugs or drunkenness or all all kinds of things, whether it's idolatry, whether it's just really idolizing yourself and your performance on a on a ball field over over God, if it's anger, if it's gossip, if it's bitterness. But you know what? It really doesn't matter if I do these things. It really doesn't matter if I gossip about people. It doesn't matter. I'm saved. I'm not I'm not going to be condemned for it. Well, that's not exactly true because there is a necessary and certain relationship between grace and holiness. And we need to be very clear about this. In these verses, they tell us that God's saving grace and true saving faith has united us. This is what these verses, these 14 verses are trying to tell us. That God's saving grace and true saving faith has united us with Christ and will certainly produce holiness. Because salvation unites us to Jesus Christ. God's grace... And salvation will not lead to lawlessness or into a life consumed with sinful passions. If you are saved, your life will bear witness to it. And the truth that's central to all of this as Christians is that we have been united to Christ in salvation. Union with Christ is the bedrock foundation of our sanctification, of our growing in holiness. And that's what Paul is spelling out for us here in Romans 6. So let's let's look at it. First, we have been united in His death. We see this in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into death? So everyone who is a true child of God, who has been saved by His grace, has in a very mysterious and yet very real way, participated in the death of Christ. When we experience this miracle of salvation by hearing the Gospel, the Spirit of God comes to us, dwells within us, and unites us to Jesus Christ. And because we are united to Jesus, His death becomes our death. His death on the cross becomes our death on the cross. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self has 
was crucified with Him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. And our participation in the death of Christ, in Jesus' death, comes with unspeakable benefits. We're set free from the wrath of God. We have hope for eternal life. We have hope of resurrection because of our union in Christ's death. And yet there's one very promising benefit that we receive by participating in Jesus' death. We die to sin. Verse 10, For the death He died, He dies to sin. Once for all. By the grace of God, we have died to sin. Those who are saved, rather, have died to sin. This just doesn't mean that those, those sins that you commit every day, that lying and lusting and gossiping and cheating and stealing. But Paul, he's referring here not just to those things, but to the reality of the power of sin. The power that once dominated your life. The power that holds you captive. The power that controls your thoughts and actions before you came to Christ. If you are saved, you have died to that power. That power that constrains you to sin is now dead to you. You're no longer a slave to sin. Look at verse 6 again. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This body of sin, it's crumbling. In true believers, it is being defeated. It's certainly not our master. We've been joined to a new master. Sin isn't your captain if you belong to Jesus, because Jesus is. You have died to the power of sin. When I think about this power of sin and this enslavement to sin, I I can't help but think about my younger brother. I I have a younger brother. He's he's five years younger than me. And to be honest, right now he doesn't live in Alabama. He actually lives in Florida because he's in a drug rehab facility because his to try to overcome an addiction that he has to, to cocaine. And, and that is a, a sin that he has been enslaved in for, for several years. And it's, it's just been devastating to our family. It's, I mean, it's been very costly to our family and emotionally and physically and financially and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there have been times when I sat down with my brother and I've talked to my brother and talked about his desire to quit. And and even in the midst of an intense drug habit, he, he would say, you know, I, I, want, I want to quit. He want, there was a sense to where even, even he longed. He said, I, I want to stop. But he couldn't. Why? Because he was enslaved to it. He was bound to it. It was like he was chained to that. And sometimes that's put before us in a very real way like that. But outside of Christ, we are all slaves to sin. Every one of us. Your sin may not be cocaine. It may be lust. 
It may be gossip. Maybe immorality. Maybe drunkenness. It may be lying. Maybe a million different things. It may be disobedience to your parents and disrespect. It could be, you know, a bitterness. I mean, it could be a number of different things. That you say, you know what? I just I lie all the time, and I. Some say I love doing it. I just I love lying. I mean, it, I love cheating. It doesn't bother me. I don't care. And even if you tried to stop, you'd still find yourself cheating and lying. And why? Because you're a slave. You're a slave to the power of sin. And if that describes you, it's because you're not united to Christ. Because as Paul is telling us, those who have been united to Christ have died to the power of sin. This leads Paul to ask this rhetorical question in verse 2. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? How can we who have with Christ died to sin still live as though sin is our master? One person says, the notion that a child of God should voluntarily give sin an opportunity to operate, that he should actually encourage it, produces a revulsion in Paul's heart. He is disgusted with the very suggestion of it that you would voluntarily give sin an opportunity to operate, that you would actually encourage it to operate in your life or even in the life of someone else. It's repulsive. It's repulsive to God. Because, you see, for a Christian to continue to live in sin... Now again... We'll understand, we know that we all, no one is perfect. No one can achieve perfection in this life. But yet, to to live in sin without diligent repentance of that sin, without brokenness over sin, to continue to live and engage in acts of immorality and disobedience, to live, to continue to live in sin for a Christian, it's not just impermissible, it's impossible. It's impossible for a Christian to act that way. So flippantly and nonchalantly and encouragingly towards sin. So should we live in sin that more grace will come and forgive us of our sins? No. In fact, that lifestyle is an impossibility for the Christian. You've died to sin with Christ, so you will be holy. You'll be putting to death sin. Now for some, this may make you worry. You may be sitting there and worried a little bit about your own life. And, and perhaps it should. Because if you live an intentional life of continual sin, it may be that you have not experienced the grace of God. That you've not been saved. And I want to say, I know that we all struggle. But there's a difference between struggling and dwelling to love sin, to desire it, to perpetually practice it is not the mark of a true Christian. And if you find yourself there, unable to overcome your desire for sin, you need to turn to Christ. You need to look to Him. You need to look at His death on the cross and His death to sin. Because His death to sin can be yours if you'll trust Him if you will believe in His death, and the only power to overcome and believe that death 
is to, is to believe that His death can be yours. Jesus will save you. You can be set free from the power of sin. Now, for others of you who may be Christians, I hope that this encourages you. Because you've died to sin. That sin that constantly nags at you, you can overcome it. You don't have to give in to that besetting sin. There's not one sin that you must commit. There's not one sin that a Christian must commit. While we know that we will sin, we should know that we don't have to. Sin has no dominion over us. You can live a holy life. And God is doing that in you through your union with Christ. Now, the next way we've been united to Christ is with His resurrection. We've been united with Him in His resurrection. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. There is a future resurrection that we look forward to from the dead one day, when we will be united and have a new body, But here, something else is being communicated. There is a resurrection that Christians have already received. Look at verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the purposes of Jesus' resurrection was that we would walk in newness of life. We would no longer live dedicated to the sinful passions of this world, but live lives that are dedicated to the glory of God. And through our union with Christ... We have new desires that have been set toward Christ and His glory. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And as verse 10 says of Christ, now the life that we now live, we live to God, not to sin and not to this world, Because we have died, we can put to death the sin that still remains. But because we've been been raised with Him, we can walk in newness of life and obey Him by living for Him. And it's because of this new self that it's united to Christ that we can live obediently to God. That's why we can live for Him. It's because of our union with Christ that Jesus can command us to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's because you've been united to Christ. It's because of our union with Christ that Jesus can command us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, God's grace transforms us. We walk in a new life obedient to Him. And this is the inevitable result of grace. 
So if you've experienced God's grace, we must and necessarily will be putting to death sin. We'll be striving against it and repenting of it. So what should we do when we're faced with the temptation to sin? Well, this text also gives us some of these implications of this truth. What should we do when we're faced with sin? What should we do when we're faced with sins of what are called commission? You know, doing the things that we know we should not do. And what about the sins of omission? You know, not doing the things that we know we should do. Well, Paul gives us the answer to how this practically applies. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider grace through the gospel. Remind yourself of what you've become. That you are not who you used to be. Remember that grace has changed you and made you new. Don't let sin reign. And then secondly, you must present. Verse 13, Present yourselves to God who, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because of what Christ has done, you can now put on your new self. You can obey. And you must obey. Act on the truth that you have received. Put yourself at God's disposal. Stop acting sinfully and give yourself to God. You see, grace doesn't, grace doesn't cause sin. Grace dethrones sin. Grace destroys sin. You know, it's, it's foolish to think that the medicine we take for sin would cause it to come alive. If it has that effect in you, it's not because of grace, it's because of you. Have you died to sin? Are you united to Christ? Are you putting to death sin? If you have experienced the grace of God, then your your senior year is going to be one of it's going to be one of many things, a lot of fun and a lot of joy, most certainly. It's going to be one of you walking and putting to death sin that's in your life. Whatever sin it may be, whatever sin that may come upon you and you find yourself falling into, you're going to be growing in holiness. You're going to be repenting of sin. You're going to be working with all of your might by the grace that God supplies to overcome the sin in your life. And if that's not the outcome of your life, that's not what's going on in your life right now. Well, it's because grace doesn't reside there. It's because Christ doesn't reside there. That's the necessary effect of grace. So if that's not the outcome of your life as it is right now, then, then we've got questions to ask ourselves. We've got to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith to change us that we would apprehend His grace and we would be united in His death and die to our sin and be raised with Him in new life that would then live for Him. You've been listening to a message by Chad Haygood. He's a senior pastor at Grace Life Fellowship Church. I also want to mention today that there's an opportunity for pastors, elders, church leaders to attend a statewide conference on leadership. It's called the Bold Conference. And you can find out information on the internet at www.
boldchurchconference.org. It's being hosted by Highland Park Church in Columbus. The featured speaker is Dr. Albert Muller of Southern Seminary. Justin Erickson is a senior pastor at Highland Park Church, and he's been a guest speaker at Nebraska Christian Schools. And we're encouraging everyone to go to the website and encourage their leadership to consider the conference. It's at the end of September, starting the last day in September and going Monday and Tuesday at Highland Park. And again, all the details are at boldchurchconference.org. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Mm-hmm.